nearly three months in the first three chapters of uh, Genesis is where we've been since the beginning of the year. Uh, Two more Sundays, two more Sundays. Today and next Sunday, we'll be done with Genesis chapter 3. April, we'll get into Genesis chapter 4. At that point, the, the pace of this sermon series will increase quite a bit. But a lot of time and a lot of care, attention given to the very first three chapters. Today is also Palm Sunday. For those of you who uh, recognize a historical church calendar, uh, this is the final week of the Lent season, which is a 40-day period leading up to Easter Sunday. Uh, So we're in our last week here, which is why we'll be celebrating on Friday uh, the crucifixion of Christ. And then on Sunday, Easter Sunday, celebrating the resurrection of Christ. So uh, a, a time historically where Christians have given themselves to contemplation of the cross, confession of sin, repentance. And so this is a, this is a season for that. And so we'll be looking to the cross this week and then looking to the looking in the empty tomb next Sunday. Today, two short verses within the text that Pastor Curtis just read. Uh, Verse 20 and verse 21 are the two verses that we're going to look at this morning. Two great actions you'll find here, one by man and one by God. In verse 20, Adam names his wife. And in verse 21, God clothes Adam and Eve. The two actions that that may at first seem insignificant, but hopefully, prayerfully, by the end of the sermon, you will find with me that these are massive actions that take place. So let's pray and we'll get started. Our Father in heaven, you are such a good father. And you have loved us since before we loved you, before we knew you. And you have uh, loved us into loving you. And our lives have, have become joy-filled. Our lives have become meaningful and, and purposeful. Uh, our lives have not, not only become bearable, they've become abundant, Lord. So, uh, and we say that, God, uh, acknowledging that our, our circumstances have not changed dramatically. For some of us, God, you know we've been through uh, immense pain and suffering. Some of us maybe even more since we have come to know you. But God, you have given us a, a security and a hope and a peace that, that, that runs deep and is beneath everything that has come our way in this life. And so we thank you for this. I pray today that there would be, even in this room, another soul that would come to know of your abundant love and grace for them, that they would turn to you. I pray that all of us who do know you and love you, who call ourselves disciples of of you, I pray that our uh, affections for you would uh, grow today. I pray that our understanding of you would sharpen. I pray that our uh, conviction over our our sin and often offense to you would uh, would be weightier. God, and I pray that we would worship you and, and worship you well the way you deserve uh, to be worshipped. So bless this time as we open your word. Thank you for giving us your word and thank you for giving us your spirit to understand your word. 
And thank you for giving us time, time to know you more, time to serve you more, time to worship you more. So be glorified this morning. We pray this in the good, the perfect name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. Well, please open your Bible, if you haven't already, to Genesis chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Remember what's happened so far. Uh, This is right on the heels of God passing sentence on the guilty parties that are gathered together in the garden. God has stood before Satan and the woman and the man who have just conspired together in rebellion against God, disobeyed God and followed Satan, uh, unbelieved, disbelieving God and believing Satan. God doesn't leave him in that state. He comes down and brings consequences. The highest consequence comes to Satan who receives the, the death sentence. And God deals much more mercifully and graciously with Adam and Eve. However, they both do receive painful consequences. God does bring painful consequences into their life. Consequences that are meant to and consequences that will remind them of the height from which they've fallen, that will remind them of their rebellion against God and and will lead them to a place of of desperation and frustration and, and ultimately an abiding awareness of their need before God. The worst place you can ever be in your life is to be in a state where you think that you have no need. The most dangerous place that we can be as a people is to think that we are just fine, no help needed, independent, self-sufficient, because when we're in that kind of a state, we're not looking to God. And we're not viewing our relationship before a holy God appropriately. The truth is we're broken. The truth is we're sinful. The truth is that we are apart from God intervening. We stand before Him condemned as guilty sinners. So we are in a desperate situation. God wants us to feel that desperation. And so He has made the fall felt. And He brought these consequences to Adam and Eve that that remain today. On all of us, we feel the weight of this physically, emotionally, spiritually. And so now we come immediately following that curse that God administers to Satan, the man, and the woman. Now we have these two actions. We'll look at them at a verse at a time. First, verse 20. And this is the account of Adam naming his wife. Genesis 3, verse 20 says... The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. A beautiful name that Adam gives his bride. A beautiful name. The name Eve means mother. He names his wife mother or life giver. That's what mother means. He looks over at Eve and, and he names her life giver. God does not name Eve. God gives that responsibility to Adam. This is a great privilege and responsibility that God gives to him. And so uh, this is what Adam says about her. This is what comes, comes out of his mouth 
following everything that we have read to this point. He looks at her and says, Your name shall be Life Giver. Your name shall be Mother. I know that my favorite name to be called is Daddy. That is my absolute top favorite. People call me a lot of different names. Some I can mention, some I can't. Eric. Uh, some, some just call me Myers. Uh, Mr. Myers. Uh, Pastor Eric. Pastor Myers. My wife has names for me that I shouldn't mention. My kids call me Daddy. And I love being called Daddy. I love the sound of, of Daddy. In fact, I like it even more than, than Dad. And I like it more than Father. They don't call me Father very often. But even my older boys who are 10 and 9 now, right, the, the, the Y is falling off, I notice. And they're, they're not calling me Daddy as much as, as they're starting to call me Dad more. And it kind of bugs me. I don't like it. I want them to call me. I want them to call me Daddy. I'm pretty sure and hopeful that my daughter will call me Daddy, till I die. I hope so. But but my boys too. I, I just love the sound. I love the sound of Dad. I love the sound of of, of Daddy. It is this beautifully uh, affectionate title that, that only they can call me by, and I just love it. And I think, I think I could speak for a lot of the moms who are here today. I think you would say the same thing about, about mommy and about mom and about mother. That there is something wonderful about that title and about that name. Okay, so it's just a beautiful, beautiful name that Adam gives. This isn't just functional. Okay, this is a beautiful name that Adam gives his wife when he looks at her and says, Your name, your name is Life Giver. Your name is is Mother. Now that said, this is a very this is a very strange name for Adam to give his wife, and this is the reason. The reason this is a very strange name for Adam to give his wife is because his wife is not a mother. See, we're reading it. We're reading it from the future, right? So we know the story of Cain and Abel. We know that that they're going to have children. But at this point, this is a strange name for Adam to give his wife because she's, she's not a mother. She's not pregnant. She doesn't have any children. And so it, it almost sounds a bit presumptuous. In, in fact, though Adam and Eve were given the charge by God to be fruitful and multiply, remember he said that, that was before sin, and that was before rebellion, and that was before the curse. So God said, okay, I want you to have a family, so have children. Be a mom, be a dad. But he also said in chapter 2, verse 17, but do not eat of this fruit, and when you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. No more life, but, but death. So it might sound presumptuous that now here they are after the fall and after sin where they should be in a place where where death is coming to them. His wife does not have any children. She is not with child. And yet Adam looks at her and he names her mother. It reminds us of a story we'll read in Genesis chapter 12 when we're introduced to Abram. Okay, Abram, his name means the father of many. And he carried that name 
his entire life and did not have a single child until he was 100 years old. Abram was 100 years old before he had his first child. You can imagine what a difficult name that would have been for him to have. We also know he was an influential man. We know that he would have had many probably conversations with people who were passing through. And as his customary, they would ask him questions and tell us about yourself and, and what is your name? Abram, his name is father of many. And of course, they would ask, how many children do you have? What was his answer for a century? There was no children. It's a point of embarrassment for Abram. So is this, what, is this what is taking place here? I mean, this sounds presumptuous for, for Adam to look at his wife who does not have any children and to call her mother. The answer to whether or not Adam is being presumptuous is, of course, no. That is the short answer. The short answer is no. Adam's not being arrogant. Adam's not being presumptuous. In fact, what we see Adam doing here is living on the promise of God. He's living on the promise of God. He's holding on to a promise of God. And he's holding on to it so tightly that it affects how he lives. It affects the decisions that he makes. The first one, what he's going to name his wife. For explanation, do you remember what God said in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God was talking to Satan in the presence of Adam and Eve. And what we find here is that Adam was listening closely to what God said. Because God said this, I will put, he told the enemy, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And then what did he say? And between your offspring and her offspring. So here's what Adam has done. Adam has taken God literally. There's an idea, right? Adam is taking God literally. God said, right, when he's listening to this curse being pronounced on Satan, there's, there's two words in there that Adam picks up on. Because everything else, circumstances, everything is saying that death is coming. Okay, the penalty is coming, consequence is coming, we ate the fruit, God's done with us, this isn't going to go well. But Adam hears his two words as God's making this promise to and about Satan, and it is those two words, her offspring. So what's happened here is Adam is back to believing God. He believed God in the garden, then he, then he unbelieved God and believed Satan, and now he's back Now he's back to believing God. And he's back to the joy that comes from believing God. He's back to the the confidence that comes from believing God. Because not only are they still going to have a family, which is what he hears, right? When he hears her offspring. God's not going to make an end of us. We are still going to have the family. But not only were they still going to have a family, Eve was not going to have just any offspring, right? But one of her, one of their descendants was going to be a rescuer, a deliverer, a savior, a redeemer. 
So when Adam names his wife Eve, he's not just naming his wife Eve. This is an act of faith. This is an act of faith. God said it. I believe it. God said that she will be a mother, and so her name shall be Mother. God said that life will go on, and life will go on through my wife, through my bride, and so her name will be Life Giver. So he believed God. He believed that God would keep his promise, that they would have children, and that one day a child would be the great rescuer who would come and save his people. Now, here's the wonderful thing when you read this about Adam's faith. He does not ask God questions. He does not ask for clarification. He does not ask for details. He does not ask for an explanation. He does not ask for a sign. Some of you love asking for signs. Out loud, in your head. Good luck with that. Adam asks for no sign. What is this? God, you said it, and that's enough. That's enough. No details needed. No explanation needed. But what about, what about this? And what about sin? And what about the fall? And what about the curse? And how is this going to get... None of that. Just, God, you said it, and so I will believe it. And not just believe it, but to believe it boldly. Right? He doesn't kind of move forward with, and live tentatively, as many of us Christians do, but he lives boldly on this promise of God to the point where he's not just like, well, you know, I hope God comes through on this and I hope God gives us children and he's probably going to give us children and he seems like a good God and, and I hope this goes our way. No, it's, it's boldness to the point where when he is given the opportunity to name his wife, what does he name her? Life giver. Mother. Not wondering if this is going to happen or not. God said this was going to happen. He believed it was going to happen. This is remarkable faith based on one single promise. One single promise. Jeff Thomas said this, what faith Adam had. One promise and a vague one at that about the coming deliverer. So little information. And we can flood it with the person and work of Christ, the Son of God, and trust in Him. And yet Adam himself responds with Eve. There is life. So when Adam looks at his wife, and he names her mother, he names her life giver, Adam is saying, My wife, I see in you God's promise realized. I see in you that that life will proceed from you. God will carry out His purpose through our children and from our children will come a rescuer who will crush the head of our enemy. And so in you, my wife... In you, my wife, I see God's pledge of grace and forgiveness and salvation and provision. So he names his wife based on the word of God, based on the promises of God. He is living his life based on this promise of God. Not cir- If he was naming his wife based on circumstances, he'd probably come up with some different names. Fruit eater. You shall be called fruit eater. 
Trouble, that's your name. Trouble, expensive. Your name is expensive. If Adam is just paying attention to circumstances, he would give her the opposite name, wouldn't he? Life taker. Life taker. God said, on the day you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. And it was Eve who first ate of the fruit. And then she is the one who passed it to her husband and gave the fruit to him, and they both take it and fell into sin. A more appropriate name based on circumstances would be life taker. But we do not live according to circumstances. We do not live according to feelings. We live according to the Word of God. And while our circumstances and our feelings, for example, will affect and impact and challenge the way we live our lives, we live holding on to not them, but holding on to the promise of God. Which is exactly what Adam is doing when he says, life giver. And here's something for us to think about as we apply this. Adam had one promise. We have thousands. Adam had one promise. Vague promise. Friends, we have thousands of promises in this book from God. I did not count them this week. I did not have time this week to count the promises of God. Every time in this Bible God says that He is going to do something, you understand that's a promise. The reason is because as Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of a man that he should change his mind. God is very different from us that way. God has never not followed through with something. Never. God always follows through. So when God says he's going to do something, he always is going to do something. Therefore, when God says he's going to do something, it is always a promise. One commentator added up over three thousand promises in this book from God to his people. The question that that means it poses to us as, as Christians is do we live faithfully holding on to the promises of God the way Adam held on to one promise? Joel Beakey, he's an author. We, I think we sell a couple of his books back here. He has this the story he tells of when his dad was coming to the end of his life. And on one occasion, his dad was about to go in for surgery. And so he calls his whole family into his bedside. And then he, he talks to them each individually. And he has words for them in case this is it. And this is what he said to his son, a pastor, referring to the text that we're looking at today. Son... Please preach the simplicity of the gospel. It is so simple. Adam had one promise, faint though it be, and he believed God. And God counted it to him for righteousness. We have thousands of promises. There is life in the promises, life abundant. So here's the difference between us and Adam. We do not live on the promise of God. We live on the manifold promises of God. It is greater 
We're not just standing. We're not just standing on this small piece of earth, you know, about the size of our feet, a little smaller, like Adam, and that's the promise. We are standing on a a nation of promises. Just miles of promises foundationally pinned beneath us. And this is what we stand on as Christians today. And we are called by God. I mean, this is so this is how we should live our lives. We should live our lives based on the promises of God, based on God's word. We should learn a promise. We should believe the promise and we should live according to that promise. Simply said, not simply done. But this is what we're called to do. And this is how we're called to live. Because circumstances that will come our way will, will sway us easily. Like a, like a storm, like a ship on the ocean. And, and the winds come and the waves come. And we'll get tossed all over the place. Okay, things will happen and they will cause us to think a certain way and to feel a certain way. And we so easily will live out of that and make decisions based on that. But the way we're called to live as Christians is to hold fast to the Word of God. To hold tightly to the promises of God. To do like Adam did and to take God literally. To take God literally. And so if you, if you read your Bible that way, and you begin taking God literally, and you, here's the challenge, but if and when you do believe these promises of God, the life that comes from that is very different. Here's just a sampling of the promises we have from God. Just the tip of the tip of the iceberg of the promises of God. We are told in God's Word that He will supply every need. God will supply every need that we have. Every physical need, every uh, whatever you, emotional need, psychological need, spiritual need. God will supply all of our needs. God will care for us. That's a promise. That's not where we respond and say, I hope God comes through. I hope this goes okay. Uh, I hope God's provision comes. No, God promises. He promises to supply all of our needs. This is, this is God's counter to anxiety and to worry because we, we struggle to believe this promise that God will really supply all of our needs. And so when we don't believe that, we get anxious, right? You know, I know, we get anxious, we get worried, or we fret. And God is saying all over the place in His Word to His people, stop freaking out. Stop freaking out. I got this. But we get worried because we look, we look, that's a pretty big wave. I'm in a pretty small boat. Are you sure? And we stop holding on to these promises of God. No, God says He will supply all of our needs according to His riches in Christ Jesus. He says His grace, He promises, His grace will be sufficient. No matter what happens, no matter what comes your way, God will give you enough grace to endure. His grace will be all that you need. If everything else 
go south. If you lose everything else, you will not lose God's grace and God's grace will be sufficient. It will be enough and everything that you need. So don't worry. So don't be anxious. You remember what God does in Matthew chapter six? He says, look at the bird and look at the flowers. They're not freaking out. The bird's not worried about it. You don't see anxious birds in your yard, right? You don't see birds laying on couches getting counseling. No, no birds taking Xanax. This is, this, is an, this is an us issue. This is an us problem. God says, look at the birds. They're good. Why are the birds good? Because they've just got nothing to worry about. They've been provided for. But here's the truth. You and I have been provided for. Amen. Fastening ourselves onto this promise. Fastening ourselves to these promises. God promises to finish the work that He has started. To finish the work that He has started. Have you felt like God has done with you before? Have you felt like God is not working in you anymore? Have you felt far from God? Have you felt like you're not becoming like Jesus? Have you felt like God started a work in you and put you aside and... Well, God's Word said that He is faithful to begin the good work that He started in you. That He will see it through to completion. That means, Christian, that every day you're being sanctified. That means, Christian, that today you're more like Jesus than you were yesterday. It means that though it may be incremental, and it may sometimes be barely noticeable, that God is working in you. And God is working in you and that He will never, another promise, He will never leave you or forsake you. He is ever-present, and He is with you, and He is for you, and He is behind you, and He is within you, and God will never leave you. You will feel abandoned times. You will feel lonely. And you may be abandoned, and you may be lonely on a horizontal plane, but you are never on a vertical plane in terms of God. You are never alone, and you are never abandoned. God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. That is a promise to hold on to. And whatever it is that comes your way, another promise is that God is working for the good. He's working for your good. That means that the most painful, horrible circumstance that ever comes into your life, that it is God's very best for you. It is God's very best for you. He is is working something unimaginably good in you and for you, even when it looks like or appears like the opposite. God promises we will not be overtaken with temptation. And God promises, ultimately, we know this in Christ, victory over death. These are promises of God. Adam had one promise. We have manifold promises. The challenge for us is to read these promises, believe these promises, and take God literally and live accordingly. That's verse 20. This is what, that's what Adam does. A massive action. And now God's massive action in verse 21 of chapter 3. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and he clothed them. And God makes clothes and then he clothes Adam and Eve. The oldest profession is actually making clothes. Right here in the garden, after the fall, after sin. And it is God. It is God who makes the clothing. God not only makes the clothing, but then He gives the clothing 
to Adam and Eve. I did not have the time I desired this week to study this verse. I think if I had months to study this verse, I would still feel like I was falling short of the significance of, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And so I want to, I want to bring us in. I want to bring us into how significant what we're reading here is. One thing that, that, that may have gone unnoticed for many of us as Christians is that clothes are significant in the Bible. There is clearly a theology of clothing in Scripture. Some of you gals are like, I knew it. <laughs> I knew it. But it's true. From Genesis to Revelation. Now here's, so we start here in the garden, right? This very first act, God is going to clothe Adam and Eve. And we keep reading, and we don't have time to talk about all of it, but clothes are all over the place in Scripture. Okay, soon we would read about the high priest and his clothing, and how specific God was about his clothing, and how special and, and ornate his clothing was. Because when clothing is in your Bible, it's not just physical. It's not just the material. It's not just visual and outward. It is a sign and it is a symbol of something else, something massive. Or you can read on, and we'll look in a bit, Luke chapter 15, about the prodigal son. Remember, the prodigal son comes home, and what does the father throw on him right away? He throws on him a robe, and that's not just incidental, that is significant, and that is symbolic. The clothing in your Bible means something, and clothing today means something. We get all the way to the end of Revelation, and there are Words invested in teaching us how significant is the clothing that we're going to be given at the end of the consummation of all things as God's people, His saints. So from Genesis to Revelation, we see that, that there is something that God is teaching His people and He is teaching His people this through clothing. Now here's the unfortunate and sad thing. It seems to me that most of the time in the church today, when clothing is talked about, it's usually in a negative and prohibitive sense. Right? Most of the conversations that we have as Christians in regards to clothing are all about 1 Peter 3 or, first, or, or Timothy, all about modesty. Now, the Bible speaks to modesty. And the Bible, when it comes to clothing, it does have some, some, some principles for us to draw from that would, that would be some negative concepts and some prohibitive concepts and some things that we need to apply in the, in the way we dress, some don'ts of how we dress. But what's really unfortunate is when it comes to talking about clothing and what God has to say about it and what Scripture has to say about it, that's pretty much all we talk about. But the Bible... And just what I've already accounted and we'll see here speaks very positively, positively 
about clothing. Isaiah 61, verse 10 says this. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. You see what you see what Isaiah is saying? You see clothes, you see beautiful clothes, you see the king dressed this way, you see this bride dressed this way. You see her in this beautiful gown. You see her spending the entire day getting ready to present herself to her groom. Do you see this wife? Do you see how she is dressed for her husband? Do you see these these clothes that they're wearing? And what is is Isaiah saying? Saying that's, that's pointing you to something. That's pointing you to something. This has rich, deep meaning. Here would be very basically what it means symbolically. In the Bible, the absence of clothing or, or nakedness is, is always a symbol, a sign of sin and shame. So nakedness, being without clothing, it is a symbol of sin and shame. It is closely connected to sin and to shame. Clothes are a sign of God's provision, of God's grace, God's love, God's salvation. Isaiah says, God, you have clothed me with salvation. Nakedness, a sign of sin and shame. Clothes, a sign of God's provision, God's salvation, God's covering, merciful, gracious covering of His people. Four observations based on verse 21. Four observations I'd like to walk through. And keep that meaning in your mind. Okay, nakedness in the Bible. Okay, this is a sign of sin and shame. Clothing, covering in your Bible is a sign of God's provision, love, grace, mercy, salvation. Okay, first observation. Just from this one verse, we can draw four. First, a covering was needed. For Adam and Eve, a covering was needed. They needed some clothes. They felt exposed, which is why they sought covering. Remember right away? Verse 25 of chapter 2 says they were naked and unashamed, no problem. And then once they sinned and were aware of the sin within, that led to shame, and shame leads to hiding. If we don't have clothes on, this is true today, we've experienced it. We want to cover ourselves. We want to avoid certain people. They avoided the presence of God. And so we see them trying to cover themselves. They try to cover themselves with fig leaves and, and trees. First, they sewed fig leaves to try to cover parts of their body. 
And then when God came into the garden, they hid behind the tree. What are they doing? They're trying to cover themselves. They're trying to cover their sin and shame. They're trying to to ignore their sin and shame. They're trying to not deal with their sin and their shame. And so they are sowing fig leaves together. So a covering, a covering was needed. So when God comes and he brings a covering, you see that this is a very compassionate act of God. He doesn't leave him to squirm. He doesn't leave him naked and ashamed. He comes and and God is going to provide clothing, which is is a foretaste of what he's going to continue to do for his children. So that's the first thing. A covering was needed. Just, it's the same. A covering is needed. A covering is needed. We're talking physical and spiritually, right? Don't forget what this is a sign of. We need clothes. We need protection from the elements. We need protection from the shame that would come. But we also have sin that needs covering. We also have sin that needs dealing with. A covering was needed. Number two, Adam and Eve's coverings were inadequate on many levels. The coverings that Adam and Eve came up with were inadequate. Fig leaves offer no protection from cold. Fig leaves offer no protection from shame. The protection that, and the, the covering that they came up with was, was completely inadequate. So too, the, the coverings that we come up with specifically for our sin and for our shame is inadequate. Well, we've been sowing fig leaves ever since. Sowing fig leaves. Fig leaves are are our unsuitable coverings. Okay, fig leaves are our inadequate dealing with sin. That's what a fig leaf is. It is not dealing with sin adequately. It is not getting to the root of the problem. The most common fig leaf... The most common fig leaf, that's better, we call works. The most common fig leaf today is, is works, good works, right? It's this idea that I'm justified before God and, and I'm accepted by God because of the good things that I do or because of the good person that I am. It's a fig leaf. It's not actually dealing with our sin. It's actually ignoring our sin. It's saying, I'm fine. No, thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm not that corrupt. I am accepted by God based on my goodness, based on my own good works. And it's this inadequate dealing with sin. It's taking matters into my own hands. That's what Adam and Eve did when they sowed the fig leaves. That's not going to fix your problem, Adam and Eve. That's not going to protect you. That's not going to guard you from shame. That's not going to deal with your sin. But it's what we naturally do as human beings because we know, we know that we're sinful. We know that we're sinful. We know there's a God. We know that God is not sinful. We know that if there's any way that we're going to get to God 
there's going to have to be some kind of purity in us, some kind of change in us, some kind of goodness in us. And so what most of the world does, including many in church, is we try to earn that. And we try to be good enough, right? We prop the ladder up on heaven and then we have all these rungs that we define. And we're either religious or we're not. But we have these good deeds that we do. And we believe that it's based on this good person that I am. That's why God loves me. And we would never say it, but that's what we believe. I'm a good father. I'm a good mother. I'm a good citizen. I'm a good husband. Um, I'm a faithful churchgoer. I serve more than anyone else at my church. Uh, I give a lot of money to charity. Uh, I'm very disciplined with my time. I'm a very organized person. I'm physically attractive. Whatever it is, we have all these different things that we hold on to and, and use that as reason in our mind why we are fine before God. And we can do those good works and we can do those good deeds and and they may be pleasing to other people and they may be helpful for other people and it may make us look good in the eyes of the world. But when we present those to God, it's offensive. Because God's Word says you have sinned. You've committed treason. It is infinitely offensive. And the wages of your rebellion, the price for your rebellion is death. Alienation from me, not communion with me. And so your good works are just window dressing. And it does nothing. It does nothing to address the problem of sin. When we come to God with our good works and and plead for acceptance based on our good works, it's like trying to buy a car with monopoly money. Hopefully none of you would do that. You're not going to go down to the dealership, pick out a car. That'll be $20,000. You start rolling out, you know, golden $500 bills and laying them on the counter. It's an extra fiver for you, buddy. You're not going to do that. That, that. He will look at you and want to hurt you because that currency, that currency is meaningless, Right? That currency is now when you're sitting at home and you're playing with your your family. That currency means something. Okay, it's a game. But if you try to take that and buy a car with it, the currency is meaningless in that context. That is what good works are before a holy God. Amen. When we try to present good works to God as a basis for our acceptance, here's what we're doing: we're coming to God with fig leaves, and it is an inadequate covering. Observation number three. God had to provide adequate covering. Covering was needed. The covering that Adam and Eve came up with was inadequate. God had to provide adequate covering. Only God is capable of providing adequate provision. This is true for us today. So too, God must provide our covering. Here's what we find to be true about clothing. The best clothing is not taken, it's given. This is true with Adam and Eve. They they took clothes, didn't they? 
Okay, they bought their own clothes. They made their own clothes. They made fig leaves. And it was, it was insufficient. It was inadequate. So someone else had to give them clothes. God had to give them clothes. The same is true for you today. You'll see this even in a material sense. So my wife can go out and she can buy a shirt. She can see a shirt and she can love it and she can buy it. And she can wear that shirt and she can enjoy that shirt. But do you know what she loves much more than that? When I buy her a shirt. When I give her a shirt, it comes with different meaning. And it has totally different purpose behind it. And she, she senses through that gift my love for her and my affection for her. It reminds her that I care for her and love her and want her best. The best gifts or the best clothing is not taken, it's given. We see that God is the one who clothes us. What does God call us? He calls us to clothe other people. He calls us to clothe those in need. He causes us, if we have a family, to, to, to clothe our children and our spouses. What is happening here? It is another pointer. It is another pointer. It is another reminder that the clothing we need needs to be given to us. And the best clothing is given to us. God had to provide adequate covering. Fourth observation. Death was necessary for Adam and Eve to be provided with clothing. You remember the verse? What does it say? And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So what had to happen in order for God to cover Adam and Eve? What had to happen in order for God to adequately clothe them? Death needed to happen. The death of two animals. A death for Adam, an animal for Adam, and an animal for Eve. So that they could be covered with the skins of these animals. So when we're reading Genesis 1 through 3, there is no death in the garden until this point. There is no death in the garden until this point. The first death in God's creation, the first death is right here. And we've got to pay attention. This is the the death of whom, the death by whom, and death for whom. Was the death by who? God. God is the one, at the end of Genesis 3 here, God is the one who sheds blood. Not Adam and Eve. God sheds blood. Whose blood does He shed? Two innocent animals. Two innocent animals. And who is this death for? Who is this blood shed for? The two guilty people in the garden. So put that together. What is this death in Genesis 3.21? It is God shedding the blood of the innocent for the guilty. This is, is not only gospel words we have now, but now it is, it is the, the, the gospel displayed and portrayed for Adam and Eve. 
So in order for the guilty to live, in order for Adam and Eve to live, what has to happen first here? The innocent dies. In this case, two innocent animals. Hebrews 9.22 says, For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Follow this through your Bible. It starts here with Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve are shown that an innocent one can die for an individual. One for Adam, one for Eve. Fast forward to the Exodus. When, when God's people are about to be led out of Egypt. And do you remember what God does before He leads His people out of Egypt? He teaches them Genesis 3.21 again. He says, I want you to... He told all the families, right? They were to bring into their home a, a lamb. They were to bring a, a lamb into their home for, for three days. And on the third day, they were to slaughter the lamb. They were to kill the lamb, this innocent lamb. And what were they to do with the blood? They were to shed the blood over their doorway. And God said, the reason I want you to do that is because tonight I'm going to send an angel of death through all the land. And he's going to slay the firstborn in every household except those that have the blood of a lamb spread over the doorway. So here God moves with His people past the idea that an innocent one can die for a guilty individual. And now you have an innocent one dying for an entire family. Then we fast forward and God's people are freed and they're wandering in the wilderness and God gives them His law. He says, I want you to build a tabernacle, a place where you will worship me. And in that tabernacle, you're to have two rooms, the holy place and the most holy place. And no one goes in the most holy place. No one. Vaporized. If you go in the Holy of Holies. One man can go in that room one day out of the year. The high priest. And remember what the high priest had to take with him when he went into that room? Blood. Blood. And he would take the blood into that room and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Just the cover. The covering on the Ark of the Covenant. He had to sprinkle the blood. And this was called yearly the Day of Atonement. And now God's people were being taught that the blood of an innocent one can cover the guilt of a nation. we got an individual, family, a nation. And then we fast forward to John the Baptist, the last prophet, standing on the banks of the Jordan River, baptizing his disciples. And who shows up on the other side of the river but Jesus. And in John 1, 29, do you remember the words of John? He said, Behold the Lamb of God. Here to do what? Here to take away the sins, not of the individual, not of the family, not of a nation, but His blood, the entire world who will be slain for the entire world. Now, God began teaching that there is no adequate covering that we can come up with ourselves, that He must provide the covering. And the covering that He will supply will be the blood of the innocent for the guilty. And that will ultimately be His own Son, 
Jesus Christ, whose blood would be shed on the cross in the place of guilty sinners. What God does in Genesis 3:21 is not just putting clothes on Adam and Eve. He is pointing, pointing them, pointing us to Christ. So too death is necessary for us to be clothed. Jesus Christ had to die. Last scripture I want to read you is from Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, and I'll read verses 17 through 22. Uh, This is a familiar story. The story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son and the father. The father who represents God. And the father who loves this son, forgives this son. The son is, has done nothing to warrant any, anything good from his father. And yet the, the father lavishes love on his, his son. So it's a portrait of God and his people. But there is also a parallel here to Genesis 3.21 because there's a clothing that the father does of his son. And what I want us to pay attention to is, 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 is what the father does and when he He does it. So this is familiar to many of you, I know. Luke 15, beginning in verse 17. But when he came to himself, this is the the son, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? So I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. When the prodigal son received this robe from his father. It was not the climactic reward at his retirement after years of faithful service to his father. That is not what we read. The prodigal son began his pardoned life in the best robe. You know what he had done to earn that robe? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. God gives the best clothing. No one clothes us the way God clothes us. The Father says, Bring my son the finest robe. 
the best. Best robe you can find. Husbands, it's one thing when you give your wife, you know, your old sweatshirt that you're not going to wear anymore. She may appreciate that. But it is something else, and it is a portrait of something else when you save your money and you bring her home a nice coat. This is how Jesus loves his church. He clothes us in the finest, finest robe. When does he do that? It is the very first rung on the Christian ladder. Friends, it is not the last rung on the ladder. You have been given these riches right now in Christ Jesus. You're just waiting for the party. He has clothed you in the finest robe. Spiritually speaking, He has clothed you in His righteousness. You are in Christ. Before God, you stand as innocent and as righteous as Jesus Christ Himself. This is how God has clothed you. It is an exchange of Christ's worthiness for our unworthiness, His sinlessness for our sinfulness, His purity for our impurity, His beauty for our deformity, His sincerity for our guile, His truth for our falsehood, His meekness for our pride, His reliability for our backsliding, His love for our hate, His fullness for our emptiness, His glory for our shame, His righteousness for our manifold righteousness. So we come now to our time of communion in our service and we're going to do something different uh, this week that we're going to we're going to continue to do when Christ in giving his body to be broken and in giving his blood to be shed it has demonstrated it has demonstrated God's love for those he has called to salvation secured it demonstrated it. This is how we know God's love for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The elders feel like uh, at times this part of our service is just is just too too quick. And so what we'd like to do is for any that wish to uh, we're going to offer just a few just a few moments of, of personal reflection following the sermon just a few moments of personal reflection uh, confession and thanksgiving and once the leaders are up here serving the elements you can come freely and you can you can take them let's pray our father in heaven we thank you for being our good father and we thank you for clothing us the way you have god thank you for giving us all good things Thank you for giving us the the finest robe, not as a, a testimony of our worth, but as a testimony of your worth. 
not to showcase how deserving we are, but to showcase how merciful you are. That you would take us, Lord, stained and dirty and broken, sinful, and you would cover us in the finest robe. That you would bring us into a, a, a people and a family and a priesthood in which we do not belong that you have adopted us as your sons and daughters and given us the name of Christ to bear. We pray that we would do this well, Father, that we would hear your promises, that we would believe your promises, and we would live according to your promises for your glory, for your name, for your honor. We pray this, Father, in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.